Chapter Twenty Seven of Esther Reed's Namesake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Esther Reed's Namesake by Pansy. Chapter Twenty Seven. Children of One Father. It is one thing to know certain facts; it is quite another to have a genuine heart realization of them. It is safe to say that to fully half of his large audience, Spencer Randall's home mission story was a revelation. It was something more than a story. Almost it was what might be called a materialization. With a few masterly touches, he described Helen, the wife of his youth, and the beautiful and cultured home from which he had taken her. Then they journeyed with him and his bride to the little straggling western town that had expected to boom and been disappointed. He introduced them to the unpainted house set in the midst of a treeless stretch of ground, the house still unfinished that had been her home for a quarter century. He gave them a view of the garden after the caterpillars had visited it and mass. He showed them the rose bushes and the honeysuckles after a drought, and the country generally after the locusts passed that way. He let them stand beside him and watch with sinking heart the tearing up of the ties of a mile of railroad that was to have brought them prosperity, and that changed its mind and went the other way. He gave them a vivid picture of the little spireless church with its awful two hundred and fifty dollar debt hanging like a millstone about its neck. He described a few, a very few, of the heroic efforts, the surprising sacrifices, some of them so singular that they would have been ludicrous had they not been pathetic, which the people had made toward the lifting of that debt, and yet, because of their poverty, had failed. Then he took them out to the Johnson cabin, eight desolate miles from anywhere, and described the patient, hollow-eyed, hard-worked, poorly-fed woman who had lived there for years, hungering for her eastern home until the picture had dimmed and faded, and there had finally moved into view a vision of the eternal home, the house not made with hands, waiting for her in her father's country. It was then that he let them realize that God had not forgotten the poor little town which had never boomed, but had ordered the gates of heaven thrown wide one day, and sent his angels to convoy Mother Johnson home. But he told them more than that. He could never explain why. He had not meant to be personal. It is certain that if Helen had been there, he would not have done it. He told them about Helen and the child how they had stood in the sunlight of that early morning and watched him down the road, waving good-byes after him, until they became but specks in the distance. And he told of the waiting mother, who had not seen her youngest born in twenty-five years, and had never seen her grandchild, and now, after all these years of hope deferred, she must be content with nobody but him, while the others bravely worked and waited at home. And he told of the patient efforts those two women had made, against almost impassable obstacles, to get him decently ready for his journey. And he told, yes, he actually told, of the one white petticoat that had evolved into two shirts with sleeves. Oh, he knew all about it, and once launched, could not keep himself from telling the whole story. He could feel, of course, how completely he carried his great audience with him so that they laughed or cried, according as he willed that they should. Yet the willing was not oratory, it was simply an honest, earnest man bent on making that representative audience understand things as they were. Of course he was eloquent and convincing, for he was master of the theme about which he was talking, and his whole soul was in it. But he did not pose as a martyr, not he. 
not for Helen, not even for Esther, who had not chosen her lot as they two had. Given the same choice again, with all the knowledge of the weary way added thereto, and he believed in his soul that they would, all three of them, yes, the child too, have chosen the same service, and looked ahead to the same reward. But it was right for the church to know what it was about. It should be able to think and talk understandingly of the road that its representatives in the home, as well as the foreign field, were called upon to tread. For two full hours he poured the power of his knowledge and his heart upon them. Once or twice he attempted to stop, and the calls came from all over the church. Go on, go on, never mind the time. Give us the rest of that story. When at last he sat down, the row of ministers on the platform were rubbing their spectacles and their eyes and looking at one another. Finally, the oldest one among them, with the tears still shining on his face, arose and said, Brethren, the only word that we can speak to you after that is, receive the benediction. Prominent in the throngs that pushed and elbowed their way out from that memorable service was Mrs. John Potter. Long before that, she had forgotten her errands and her belated dinner. Even the claims of hospitality were almost forgotten. She had something else on her mind. She turned back once to give peremptory orders to her guest. You make your way to the middle door and stand there. I'll come just as soon as I can. I've got to see two or three people first. She made her way, with the expedition of one accustomed to looking out for herself, to the side entrance, and reached there just in time. Mrs. Warren McIntyre was about to step into her carriage. She had very slight acquaintance with that lady, who was only a summer resident, and so wealthy that women like Mrs. John Potter supposed that she must of course feel exclusive. Mrs. Potter's usual manner was to stand at one side, at so great a distance that the lady could not be friendly if she desired. But all that was now forgotten. Mrs. Warren McIntyre was her present objective point, and she plucked at her sleeve with decision and spoke rapidly. Don't you think, Mrs. McIntyre, that it would be possible for me to slip around among a few of the people who heard him and raise the money to send for his wife and daughter and let them come to this meeting and go on and see her mother and surprise them all? It seems a shame that that old mother had to be disappointed again and she ought to see her grandchild. Couldn't it be done? Mrs. McIntyre withdrew her foot from her carriage step and spoke with exceeding cordiality. Why, my dear friend, what a lovely idea! I should never have thought of it. I don't see why it couldn't be carried out. They telegraph money orders. Do you mean you will see at once what you can raise? If you will, report to me this afternoon. Of course you can count on my help. I will make up whatever is needed. I'll do it, said Mrs. John Potter, energy written on every line of her strong, handsome face. There's Mrs. Armitage. I'll ask her this minute. She accomplished her object, of course. She was a woman who was used to accomplishing what she undertook. Besides, she had a tower of strength to fall back on. Had not Mrs. Warren McIntyre promised to make up whatever was lacking? She spent a busy and not unpleasant afternoon. Being a shrewd woman, with a fair knowledge of human nature and a wide acquaintance in the city, she chose her subjects with care and met not a dissenting voice. It was dinner-time when she presented herself at the McIntyre home, well pleased with her success, and her fine face fairly glowed with pride and satisfaction 
when Mrs. McIntyre promptly doubled the amount. Then, being a businesswoman herself, she entered at once into details. I am afraid that we cannot manage the surprise part, my dear Mrs. Potter, that is, so far as Mr. Randall is concerned. Mr. McIntyre thinks it will have to be explained to him, and that he must send the telegram. He says that any other arrangement would frighten the ladies. They would be sure to think that he was very ill, or had met with some accident. That is so, said Mrs. Potter, a slight shadow on her face. It seems too bad, doesn't it? I had counted on giving that man a nice surprise. Well, it's common sense, and I have always noticed that common sense has to come in, sooner or later, if a thing gets done right. How shall we manage it? It required some management. Mr. Randall was a guest of the McIntyres, and that lady undertook to make plain to him the desire of their hearts. He was bewildered and grateful and doubtful all at once. At first it was evident that the doubts predominated. It was kind, it was wonderfully kind, and, oh, he was grateful. Could anything but a stone fail of gratitude for such service, but... And then the gracious woman who had been explaining laid a gentle hand on his arm and spoke quietly. Dear friend, there is nothing strange nor strained about this. We are all children of one father, and these, our sisters, are at the front bearing some of our burdens for us, and we want to meet and clasp hands with them on the way. Will you not let us? He looked in her kind, earnest eyes and smiled. She and Helen would be kindred spirits. And there was the child, and... What was that prayer he had prayed for her but this morning? Was this the answer? While they were yet speaking, I will hear, was the promise. And the Reverend Spencer Randall laid down his doubts and his pride, and set himself to the making of that telegram. It was a work of art. He grew appalled as he struggled over its necessary length. Amid the chaos of astonishment and delight into which he had been thrown, one thought stood out clearly. Helen and Esther must not be frightened. Never mind the length of the telegram, said the merchant prince, who was as used to telegrams as he was to air. The operator won't mind its length. But it will cost a fortune, said the home missionary, and while he struggled with it, trying to strike out a word here and there, and being dismayed afresh by his inability to make it brief, the rich man stood marveling over the limitations of such a life, and the constant, petty sacrifices which it suggested, and got a clearer view of the name home missionary than ever before. The idea, he said to himself, that the number of words in an important telegram should actually trouble him. That particular day away out in the little western home had been a trying one. The fierce heats of summer were supposed to be over, yet there had come sweeping across the trackless sand a sudden and unexpected hot wave fiercer, apparently, at least harder to cope with, than the August heats had been, and, October though it was, Esther Randall had watched the effect of the heat upon her mother all that day. She is kind of beat out, a friendly neighbor had said, who lingered to sympathize with the anxious daughter. It ain't the heat so much as it is a long spell of overdoing, and no rest nor change. If she could only have gone with the elder now, what a good thing it would have been. Seems like a body has got to have a change once in a while, especially a woman. When I went out to Alviry's last spring, I was all done over, you may say. I hadn't the strength of one of our old cats, and they're about the laziest things I know of. 
But land, when I got home I felt just like a colt. And it wasn't anything but a change. You don't know no way for your mother to get away somewhere for a spell, I suppose? No, I reckon not. It's a pity we ain't some of us four-handed. Your Uncle Joram comes the nighest to it, I guess, but I suppose he couldn't. Oh, no, said Esther quickly, he couldn't. No, I suppose not. Well, you'll just have to get married, Esther, to a rich man, so that you can give your ma a change, though the land knows where you'll find him in these parts. You feed her up good on that chicken broth I brought. It's nice and rich, and it's real strengthening, you know. She called back this last item as she was disappearing around the turn in the road, leaving Esther with a heightened color, not over the advice about getting married. The woman was sympathetic and well-intentioned, and Esther was used to her, but she could not keep her face in good order over a hint of help from that new uncle of hers. She laughed a little, though, in another minute, as she recalled that never-forgotten trip out to Alviry's and the change that a journey of thirty-five miles over land had given. But almost immediately she sighed. When had her mother enjoyed even so much change as that? She peeped in on her anxiously as she lay on the wide, old-fashioned lounge in the living room. The dusk was falling rapidly, yet the breathless day had not freshened as according to all reasonable precedent an October day should have done at nightfall. Esther, as she stood there in the doorway, having returned from seeing her visitor to the gate, wondered if her father's letter received that morning, giving an account of all the wonders and glories of his trip thus far, had rested and helped her mother, or made her feel her weakness and weariness more sensibly. Then suddenly all her pulses seemed to stop for a single definite moment, and then give a sudden bound into quickened action. Down the long dusty road there loitered a boy who served as general messenger for all sorts and manners of errands having to do with the post office, the station, or the corner store. In his hand he held a yellow envelope, of that peculiar kind that could mean only a telegram, and some instinct told the girl it was for them, and must be from or about her father. Who else was there to convey news to them in such manner? And if from father, then it meant evil tidings of some kind. Father had no money to waste on commonplaces. She turned and swiftly and noiselessly closed the door, then set her brave young heart to bear the first shock, whatever it was, and shield her mother as long as she could. Yes, it was for them. The boy stopped whistling when he saw her, and handed up the envelope in respectful silence. It was addressed to her mother. Never mind, she and her mother were too entirely one to make hesitation on that score necessary, and she must see it first and break its message carefully. She read it once, twice, three times, all the blood in her body seeming to surge into her face as she read. What did that remarkable message mean? Then she bethought herself to pay the messenger and dismiss him, no wiser than when he came, though respectful curiosity spoke on every line of his freckled face. Then she went slowly, thoughtfully, into her mother. How was she to prepare her for such a message as that? End of chapter 27 Recording by Tricia G.